following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Uh, this is a new year, and it's uh, fun to celebrate New Year's actually on a Sunday. To really, what a way to start off the year, right? In church, worshiping God, praising Him. Um, and I don't know about you. Do you have any? Do you have any particular New Year's traditions? Um, for me, New Year's is kind of a holiday that I don't really care much about, honestly. Um, I'm usually about three months behind. I'm still trying to catch up with Thanksgiving and New Year's comes. And, uh, but maybe you have traditions. Maybe, um, you know, kind of the tradition is to make New Year's resolutions. Has anybody written any New Year's resolutions? I'm going to help you with that this morning. All right. And, and uh, as we look through this, um, and maybe you're like me. Maybe nobody raised their hand. Maybe nobody writes New Year's resolutions. Why is that? Could it be that you tried it once, and a month later you couldn't even remember what you wrote? Anybody been there, right? Or you remembered, but it was such a miserable failure, you've just given up, and you've decided, I'm not making goals because it just never happens. I'm just as fat this year as I was last year. In fact, I'm fatter. So I'm not going there, right? I'm not going to go there. Well, uh, as I shared, th- this... Uh, Passover is really appropriate for New Year's because uh, God tells them in verse 2 of Exodus 12, this month, uh, which is not January for them, it would have been March or April, sometime in there. But he said, this month, this, this, this time of the Passover is going to be the beginning of months for you. This is going to be your New Year's. And you're going to celebrate your New Year's every year with the celebration of Passover. And of course, we associate Passover with March, April, with spring, not with New Year's, but but for the Israelites, this was their New Year's celebration. And God said, this is how I want you to begin your New Year, by celebrating and commemorating Passover, because this is where it all begins for you as, as a nation and as a people. Uh, you're to mark the New Year by celebrating God's greatest salvation act in Israel's history. And I think there's great wisdom in, in this passage to help us think through how we celebrate New Year's. Uh, among other things. So let's look at this. Let's unpack this. And um, uh, if you've been following us with Exodus, we took a little bit of a break for Christmas, but if you've been on the journey with us, you know we've been looking at Exodus for uh, you know 11 chapters, several weeks, uh, actually a couple months, um, leading up to the, to the Exodus, right? And you guys are all on the edge of your seat. And just when we were about to do the Exodus, we took a break for Christmas. How lame is that? We've had to wait an extra four weeks, right? So we're jumping back into it. And um, if, if you're excited for the Exodus, we're almost there. And everything in, in, in the book of Exodus has been building up to this great event when God would deliver his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Uh, we got to chapter 11, and right before Christmas break, we looked at chapter 11, where we are ready for God to bring his final act of judgment uh, to finally spring free the Israelites, and instead of doing that, he takes 
a whole chapter to explain yet once again for the tenth time what he's going to do. You're like, ooh, we're so close. Okay, so we got that out of the way. God told us, okay, this is the plan. God's, you know, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. He's stubborn, but I'm going to work one more great sign and wonder. I'm going to kill the firstborn, and then he's going to let you go. And in the meantime, you're, you're to go to your neighbors, your Egyptian neighbors, and get from them their gold and their silver and clothing and wealth. Right, so we got that out of the way. In chapter 12, we are ready now for the Exodus, right? Everybody ready? Say, one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. Let's go. Let's get out of Egypt, right? Well, instead of an Exodus, we get instructions on what to fix for supper, right? That's what chapter 12 is about. This is the first half of it, right? We're not doing the Exodus yet. We're going to have instructions on dinner and very lengthy instructions at that. It is not get ready, set, go. It's get ready, get set, eat. Right? So what is this about? Right? What is this about? And this meal specifically is, is about, uh, you know, it's Passover, and, and it, it's, it appears, and it looks like it's kind of a celebration, like the, the, you know, deliverance finally came, and so we're going to celebrate it with a meal, which we do. We, we celebrate our holidays with food. I love that. I love that. I, I'm not real crazy about the... Holidays we celebrate with fasting, which is why in Christian circles we really don't have any of those, right? We celebrate with food. Uh, next week, a bunko party. We're going to have food, right? It's not a fasting bunko party. We bring food. It's a good thing. Um, so, so here's this celebration of food. But the celebration actually takes place before the exodus, right? How can you celebrate something that hasn't happened yet? Now, now just to put this all in perspective... Uh, and I, I, as I said, I didn't read through, to really get the, the scope, we would need to read through all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13. It would take us a good 10 minutes. I'm not going to do that this morning. But let me just give you the picture here, okay, in, in verse count. All right. Uh, it may seem, in fact, it very much does seem like the Passover meal is actually more significant and more important than the actual rescue from slavery. And here's why I say that. In, in two, two full chapters, chapter 12, chapter 13, I didn't count the number of verses. There's a lot of verses. But uh, 43 of those verses, 43 of them are instructions about dinner, specifically, not just dinner, specifically the Passover celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the seven days that would go with the celebration. 43 verses. Guess how many verses the actual plague, the, the final plague that God pours out on Egypt, killing the firstborn. Guess how many verses that gets? Four. Four. Okay, so the actual plague that brings about their rescue gets four whole verses. Okay, well, you know, that was kind of a sad event. What about the actual exodus itself? Surely the actual exodus would get a lot more verses, a lot more coverage. Guess how many actual verses the, ex- the exodus gets? Ten. Ten. So if you take the the plagues and the exodus together, it's 14 verses compared to 43 verses about dinner, right? Do you get the imbalance there? And if you're reading through Exodus and you're kind of studying through this, you're struck by this, right? God's about to set his people free, but he's most concerned about the Passover celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What in the world is this about? Why is it that... This, this meal, this celebration, this, this, what will become for them a holiday, is so important that even before the exodus, even before he rescues them, there's this a 
attention to this feast. Why is that about? Well, uh, if, if you're like me, you know, holidays for us tend to be a way to remember historical events. All right, so we have, many countries have their Independence Day. I, I, hate, I, I hesitate, and I won't mention United States Independence Day on July 4th because it makes our friends from the U.K. feel bad. I won't go there. But let's take a more neutral holiday, like uh, Memorial Day. Most countries celebrate a Memorial Day, and it's a way to look back at our, our soldiers, our, our people in the military services who have served our country, and many of them who have died serving, uh, fighting for freedoms, fighting for our countries. So we, we set aside a holiday to remember, to look back at what those people have done. And that's how we think about holidays. And so when we think about Passover as a a holiday that the Israelites celebrated, we we tend to think of it in those terms. It's something they did, a holiday they did, to look back at a historical event that they want to remember or commemorate. Um, But when we look at what's actually going on in Exodus chapter 12, we see that Passover was much more than that. It was not just a festival to remember. It was actually a vital part of God's saving work. A vital part of God's saving work. Um, In fact, uh, it's it's easy to say that that they really were saved by supper. It kind of trivializes it, but I like the rhyme of the words there, saved by supper. Passover was actually part of their salvation. Let's look at how that works. Uh, in, in the Exodus, God actually saves them in three different ways. Um, and this is kind of a broad look at, at Exodus. He saves them, first of all, by rescuing them from bondage and oppression. And the first part of the book looks at the oppression that they were suffering under slavery. And so God rescues them from that oppression. Secondly, God redeems them from slavery. And uh, they, were, uh, they were slaves, and in, in Old Testament times, ancient times, you could purchase somebody out of slavery, but you had to pay a price for it. Right? You could buy them out. And so this is a picture of what God does is he, he actually purchases, purchases them out of slavery. And thirdly, uh, he saves them from death and judgment. Well, how does he do that? Well, first of all, he rescues them, them from bondage by his power and mighty wonders. Verse 12 of chapter 12 says, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike the firstborn of the land, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am the I am. I am Yahweh. Um, God rescues them from bondage by his might. He's been pouring out these mighty acts of judgments. Uh, Ten up to this point, the, the plague of death on the firstborn becomes the eleventh. And he says that these have all been acts of judgment on Egypt's gods. And what he means by that is that these gods were false and powerless, and in his many displays of his his power over creation, he showed that he was the supreme God who had power and control over over the forces of nature, not not their gods. And the last one that he would judge was was life and death itself, that he was the God, he is the I am. He is the one who gives life and who takes life. It is in his power and his control. And so he, he saves them, he rescues them by, by pouring out these judgments on, the, on Egypt and on their gods. Uh, secondly, he redeems them from slavery. Uh, he does this by purchasing them out, by redeeming them, by purchasing them. And what was the purchase price? Anybody know? What, what was the price that was paid to 
buy the Israelites out. Anybody know? The firstborn, right? The firstborn of Egypt. It was their lives that became the purchase price. And he says this earlier, I believe it's in chapter 7. He says, I will redeem my children by the firstborn of, e- of Egypt. All right? So he, he purchased them, but there's a price for it. And the price, actually, the Egyptians paid themselves as God takes their firstborn. But thirdly, uh, God actually saves them from death and judgment. And the final plague, of course, is he sends out his death angel who will bring death to the firstborn of every household, man and beast. But the Israelites were spared. But unlike the previous plagues where God just kind of cordoned off the Israelites, this time they must do something, right? They, They have to be a part of how this is going to work. And that's what Passover is about, right? They are to take a a lamb or a goat that's a year old, that's that's almost to maturity, that's perfect, without blemish, without flaw, and they are to slaughter it and collect the blood and take uh, some branches and paint that blood on the doorpost of their house. Why? Because when the death angel comes, he will see that blood and the death angel will pass over that house and they will be spared the death and judgment that's being poured out on Egypt. So, um, it's important to sort this out, right? God is saving them absolutely by his own power and might and strength. But in this last final work of salvation, they have a part in it. They are to participate in what God is doing. Uh, They have a part to play in what God is going to do to rescue them. Now, um, that part is, 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 is simply participating in this meal, the, the, the sacrifice of the animal, the painting of the blood, and as we see later, the actual participation in the meal itself uh, is their peace to ward off God's, God's judgment, God's wrath, the death right, that, that he is sending. So, so what exactly is this? How is it that this meal saves them? Well, um, it really is an exercise for them of faith. Right? It is putting faith into action. Uh, the meal must come before the exodus, before God's final deliverance, not because it was a celebration, but because it really was a means of their deliverance. And the means was not their own power or strength, but their faith. And this is kind of where we can tread on dangerous ground. Okay, it would be really easy to look at this and to say that the Israelites somehow contributed something to God's saving work by their sacrifice. Right? But it wasn't that they did anything. There was nothing in the blood itself that set them free. In other words, Pharaoh didn't look out his porch and look out across the Israelites' houses and go, Oh my goodness, they painted blood on their doors. I need to let them go. That's not how it worked. It was not the blood that caused Pharaoh to let them go. It wasn't the painting of the blood that caused their salvation. God did it. Right? Ultimately, God did it by killing Pharaoh's son. And he finally relented. He finally surrendered and said, God, have your way. But the Israelites had a part in their, in their sacrifice, in their meal, in their Passover meal. Uh, what's interesting in... Um, all the way down in, I think, verse 21, it says that Moses actually explains this to the Israelite elders. So first, God communicates this, and that's the part I read. God t- 
tells Moses and Aaron what's going to happen. And then Moses turns around and he goes and he meets with the elders and he explains to them and repeats the same exact instructions, what they're supposed to do. What's interesting about this is that this is the first time since the beginning of the plagues that Moses, at least as recorded in Scripture, that Moses has talked with the leaders. And you remember when Moses first went in to meet Pharaoh and he threw down the rod and the rod became a snake and his rod, uh, of course the, the, the magicians of Pharaoh copied it and then Moses' rod eats their, snake eats their, their snakes, right? Um, and how does, Mo, how does Pharaoh to respond to that? Well, he responds not by relenting, but by actually increasing their labor. And he actually makes things much worse for the Israelites. And so the, the elders meet with Moses and say, Moses, what are you doing to us? You're not helping us. You're not delivering us. You've actually made things worse. Please go away. Okay, we don't hear anything from the elders or from the Israelites through all the plagues. Right? We don't know what's going on with them. And then we get to chapter 12. It's the final plague. And now Moses goes and he gives these instructions to the, to the Israelites and to the elders. And here's the thing. Back at, back at step one, did they trust Moses or believe God would rescue them? No, right? They were going, this is not working. We don't believe you, Moses. We don't, we don't believe that God sent you to save us. That was their exact words, right? We don't believe you're working here. So what's happened over the ten plagues? Have they changed their heart? Have they come to start to trust that God has the power and the will to save them? Well, there's only one way to find out. And God gives them a test, a way to practice faith. Do you believe me now? Do you see now what I am doing? Are you willing to trust and follow me? You see, that's what the meal is all about. Um, God did not need, and in fact, up to this point, God had spared them without any means, right? He didn't need blood painted on a door. He didn't need a sacrifice to divert the plagues away from them. And in this plague, God didn't need the blood of the lamb as a sign. Right? God knew who the Israelites were. He wasn't going to get confused. Uh, God knew. But the Israelites didn't know. Right? They didn't know where their faith was. And so God gave this meal as a measure, as a test, as a way of exercising their faith. And this is how it would work. If you believed the death angel was really coming, if you believed the firstborn was really going to die, in every household in Egypt, and God told you, the only way you will be spared is if you kill a lamb and you paint its blood on your door. If you believe that's true, what are you going to do? You're going to take a picnic outside that night, go watch the full moon, beautiful full moon, right? No. If you believe it's true, you are going to respond with an act of faith. You're going to do what God says. I don't want to lose the firstborn in my house. I'm going to do exactly what God said. Not as a works to uh, uh, attain salvation, but as an act of faith to say, yes, God said this is what's going to happen, and I am going to act accordingly. It's a great picture of what faith is. It's a great picture of what faith is. Faith is much more than simple mental assent. Okay, that's a fancy word, of, a fancy way of saying faith is more than just believing in an idea or a concept. Faith is more than accepting that something is true. Right? An illustration of that. How many of you accept as a truth that airplanes fly most of the time? <laughs> right? We do that. We accept that's true. Is that faith? 
Well, it's actually not faith, not saving faith as it is described in Scripture. Right? It's just a belief about a general truth. Right? When does that belief in a general truth become faith? Well, it, it does so when you walk down that little tunnel, right, and you step into the door of an airplane, and you sit down in the seat, and you buckle yourself in, and they close that door, and you have now committed yourself to your belief, right? It's no longer just an idea. It's now a commitment. I now have put my very life in that aircraft, and I am trusting, I am believing with my whole being that it's going to get me where I'm going to go safely, And hopefully, you know, a plane didn't just crash that morning and you have doubts, right? I I trust it. That's that's faith. And that's exactly what God is doing here. He's not just saying, I don't need from you just an acceptance that I can do something. I need evidence, proof that you are putting the weight of your life in my hands. And he does it brilliantly through this meal. By their participation, uh, they are demonstrating faith. Now, for, for Christians, if, if we're smart, if we know the Bible, you know, a, a verse that should come to our mind right about now is Ephesians 2.8, right? For by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of works, right? How is this not works? Right? How is this not doing something to earn or merit or gain salvation? Well, the difference between this and a work is that... The, There was nothing in their act that was saving, right? None of them believed that that this act alone was going to rescue them, right? It was very much in response to what God said he was going to do, and they were acting by faith in response of what he had already told them he was going to do. That's much different than a work. Now, had they they gone out and sacrificed lambs and sheep and goats by the tens and, and hundreds and thousands to say, God, you know, we're... We're uh, doing this to move you to finally save us, because we still don't believe it's really going to happen. That would be a work, right? That would be trusting in their sacrifice to move God to do something. But see, here it's reversed. God's already told them what he's going to do. And he said, in light of what I'm going to do, do you believe? And if you believe, here's the steps you can take to, to prove, to demonstrate your faith. You see, the power was in the blood, not in their act. It was not their blood that they gave. It was the the life of the Lamb. And its blood ensured their salvation. Um, And, of course, uh, in that image, we cannot help but picture Jesus, right, who is the ultimate Passover Lamb. It's nothing we do that can earn or merit or gain salvation. It is fully in the blood of who? Jesus, right? Our Passover lamb. It is his blood that's painted across our life so that uh, when death and judgment comes, we are spared, right? It passes over us because we are covered by the blood of Christ. There's nothing we do in it. But we have to appropriate it, right? We have to believe it's true. We have to put the full weight of our faith in what Jesus has done. And in Scripture, it's very clear that that faith always takes action. Always takes action. It is never merely saying, oh yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Jesus says the the demons believe and tremble. Faith must take action. 
It must respond to what God has promised he would do in such a way that it changes how we live. It changes what we do. Well, that was true. So that was true for the Israelites. And, and so we see that this Passover meal was important because it was the means or the way in which they actually stepped into God's salvation. And it, worked, it was pretty simple. If you believed it, you, you painted the door, you ate the meal, you put your belt on, you, you had your walking stick, your bags were packed, you're waiting at the door, eating a fast food meal, waiting for the exodus. Right? You were putting faith in action. If you didn't believe it was true, you stayed home that night, you rented a movie on Netflix, uh, you didn't pack your bags, you didn't kill the animal, you didn't go with the whole painting the blood thing, and judgment fell on your house. Right? Judgment fell on your house. And you were lost. Well, that was true for that generation, but what about subsequent generations? What did this Passover meal mean for them? It says, it says in verse 14, um, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord. Uh, throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Right? So the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that went with it, was to be a yearly annual event for Israel, generation after generation after generation, forever. Right? What was its benefit for them? Was it just a holiday? Was it just kind of like we celebrate Christmas or the 4th of July or Memorial Day, a way to look back at some historical event and go, wow, that was really nice that God did that for those people back then? Or was it more? Well, I believe it was more, and here's why. Verse 15 says this, Seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread. All right, so he's kind of expanding now from just Passover, and he's elaborating that this is actually going to be a feast that's going to go on for seven days. It begins with Passover on the first day, but for seven more days, you're going to uh, remove from your diet, from your house, from your cities, from, from your land, every speck of yeast. Right? Of course, yeast was used to make bread, make it rise. He said, you're going to eat unleavened bread for seven straight days. Right? And not only that, but you're going to go through your houses and you will remove leaven or yeast out of your house. For if anyone eats even a speck of it from the first day until the seventh day, what will happen? You know what will happen? In the verse 17. That person shall be cut off from Israel. Right? This is serious stuff, okay? Um, you don't want to order wrong during unleavened bread, right? Oh, I forgot. I ordered, I ordered a hamburger with the bun. Do you want to do that, right? Absolutely only unleavened bread. And the price was what? Being cut off from Israel. What did that mean? Well, to be cut off simply meant to be cut out of the assembly, to be no longer part of the covenant community of Israel. In, in New Testament terms, it means to lose your salvation, it means you are no longer guaranteed the life and blessing and salvation of the people of Israel. You are lost. Right? Salvation is no longer available to you. Now, it doesn't mean, and, and uh, there's kind of some misunderstanding in this, it doesn't mean that the people were supposed to go around and find out the guilty parties and somehow kick them out of the community. It means simply that this is the reality. You have excommunicated yourself. You have cut yourself off from participation as God's people. You were lost. Right? Uh, you were now under God's judgment, not under his blessing. 
So what does that mean? Well, it means that just like the, the first participants of Passover, this meal was for them an exercise of faith. Right? If you believed and feared God's word, that your very salvation depended on how you observed this, this festival, this feast, right? then you were very careful and you went through your house and you scrubbed and you made sure there was no yeast anywhere in your house. Right? Every little breadcrumb, every little speck and dust of, of yeasted flour, every, I mean, you scrubbed their whole house. And, and by the way, do you know where yeast comes from? Magically, it floats through the air. So even this minute, uh, there, there are yeast particles, right? And that's how they would make uh, you know, starter. That's how they would make sourdough. They just, it's, it's awesome. You just lay stuff out till germs start growing on it that come in the air, and poof, you've got leavening, right? So for them to remove it from their house, what would they have to do? They would have to scrub their house from top to bottom, walls, ceiling, floors. They'd have to pull out every cupboard, every pantry, scrub every crack to get every trace of dust and particle of... So there was no chance of yeast being in their house, right? Well, who would do this? Well, people who took God's word seriously. People who did not want to be cut off from Israel. So here again, it's what? It is an, it is an act of faith. It is believing that God's means what he says and responding accordingly with actions. I'm not going to eat leavened bread. Right? I'm going to observe this Passover because I have belief and faith that God will do what he says. And I'm putting my faith into action. So the feast became uh, an incredible, incredibly important and, and really a means for them to exercise faith. So year after year after year, they were to do this uh, as a participation of faith, as a way to live out and demonstrate their faith in God. So what does this have to do with New Year's? And what does this really have to do with us? Well, let me apply it in just a couple ways here. Um, Not only was this an incredibly important act of living out and, and practicing their daily faith, but, but he makes it clear that it's to be their New Year's celebration. It's to be the way they begin their year. Uh, this is to be the first of their months, it says. Uh, it shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, interestingly, does anybody know what day they actually celebrated Passover? It was not actually on the first day of the month. It was on what day? You may know. I read it. Right, the 14th. <laughs> Just what you were going to say, I know, right? 14th day. So how is it you can celebrate New Year's on the 14th day of the first month? This seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Why, why would you do that? Well, the answer is pretty easy. They followed a lunar calendar, and uh, the, the first of the month began with the new moon, which was kind of the no moon. That's when there's, it's dark, right? No moon. Uh, 14th day is what in the lunar cycle? Well, it's the full moon, right? Full moon. So they were to celebrate it on the full moon. So for them... The number one was not as important as this being the first full moon of the year. Uh, and, and the bigger question is, why was this supposed to be the, the celebration of the new year? Right? Why was this such a big deal? Um, he says in verse 17, You shall observe the feast of, of, feast of unleavened bread. On this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Um, 
So here's the question. Why, you know, 10 years later, 100 years later, 500 years later, 1,000 years later, was it such a big deal to be remembering what God did way back in ancient history in Egypt? Um, is that really the best way to celebrate New Year's? Right? And you know, when we think about how we celebrate New Year's, as I said, uh, kind of our Western tradition is to look to the future, to set goals, to have resolutions, to plan for the future. But God says, no, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to celebrate New Year's by looking forward. I don't want you setting goals. I don't want you making resolutions. I want you to look back, way back into your ancient history, to my great saving act in Egypt. Um, This is an important question for us as well. It would be easy for the Israelites to say, why in the world do we need to keep coming back to this saving event that happened you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago? What about today? You know, I want God to help me with my goals now, right? It was cool that God helped them way back then, but things have changed. You know, we're not in Egypt anymore. We have our own land. We have our own nation. We're our own people. We have our own king. Why do we keep needing to look back at something God did 2,000 years ago? Maybe we feel the same way. Why do I keep needing to coming back to something God's already accomplished? Why do I need to keep looking back to Christ and his work on the cross? Right? Is that necessary? After all, I got saved, right? And it's a thing that's happened in the past, and I want to move on with my life now. Uh, is it necessary for us to keep coming back to the cross over and over? And if, you're, if you've been here long, you know that I talk about the cross a lot, right? Is that true? Like every Sunday, I talk about the cross. And people may think, well, why do you keep coming back to the cross? I got saved. I've been there. I did that. Let's move on, right? Well, I think Exodus 12 would say to us, we can never get too far away from our salvation. And here's why. And here's, here's some of the flaw in our thinking and why I think we have... Some misunderstanding of this. And the flaw is in, is, it's the flaw of Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't, you really should. It's a great book. And I'm not criticizing the book. It's a great analogy, great picture of our salvation. But there is a flaw in the book. And this is how it works. Pilgrim is this, uh, this guy on a journey, and it's really a picture of his spiritual journey. And he uh, starts off the journey under this huge weight and burden of sin that's just crushing him, Correct. And, and he's struggling, and he can't go, and he's about to give up in despair. And he finally comes to the cross, and he discovers at the cross that because of what Jesus did on the cross, that burden of sin can be lifted off of him, and he can be free from its guilt and shame and crushing weight. And so he puts his faith in Jesus, and at the cross, that burden of sin is lifted off. And all of a sudden, he's a new man. He's walking with light steps, and it's easy for him. And what happens then? Well, he leaves the cross and continues on his journey with the cross in his rearview mirror. And he goes through much more of his life and much more of his spiritual journey, and the cross becomes a thing in the far distant past. And you see, that's a flaw in the book. Okay? And that's the problem with allegories. You, know, they, you can't apply them like, always to their greatest truthfulness. And it, it creates in our minds this idea that that's the, what this Christian journey is like. You know, you come to the cross and it's a starting point. It's an entry point. It's a door. 
and Jesus takes your sins off, and then you're free to move on with your life and go about your life. And you can leave the cross behind you as it grows farther and farther in the distance, just a fading memory. And every once in a while, like Easter, we pop it back out and we get out our telescope and we look way back to where we came to the cross. But for the most part, it has no play or place in our life. It's a huge mistake. And it's, it's kind of like running a marathon. You know, we, uh, we, could, we could picture this pilgrim's life, our life, as a marathon. And, and it's easy to think of the cross as the starting line. And you step up to the starting line and, bang, the gun goes off and you enter the race and you're off on this journey. But as you leave the starting line, you leave the cross behind. But anybody who's run a marathon or run a long race knows that it doesn't work that way. The starting point actually isn't the starting line. Right? If you're going to finish a marathon, as Ryan can probably tell, tell us well, uh, you've got to train a lot before you get to the starting line. Right? And that train, you've got to put in miles and miles and miles training, or you will never get to the finish line. And when you step up to the starting line, you go forward, and that training goes with you, doesn't it? It is that training. It's what you've done in the past that gives you strength and endurance to go step by step by step to the end of the race. And you see, that's much more what the cross is about. The cross is a strength and a power to endure the whole race. Well, instead of us training, Jesus did the training for us. And he imputes, he gives to us his strength, his power that he accomplished on the cross. But we take it with us every step. It is the very basis for our life. And I believe that's why God wanted this to be their New Year's tradition. He says year after year after year, you need to come back to this reminder of what your, what your life is. Your life is, is, is one of my saving work continually being poured out in your life. Yes, it happened for the Israelites thousands of years ago. But what it means and what it signifies is true in your life every single day as my saving work unfolds in your life. You see, God does not rescue us at the cross so that we can simply move on with our life. Uh, it, is, it is actually the beginning of our life that we carry with us day by day. Uh, God's saving work is to be the vital foundation and central focus of our entire life. What does that look like? Let me just give you five things. And we'll, we'll close with this. Five things that I, I believe shape our life when we build it properly on the foundation of the gospel, on the foundation of God's saving work. First one, it is how we know God. It was how Israel would know God. How would they know what kind of God he was? Well, they would discover that when year after year after year they went back and reflected on his saving work. And if you remember the the book of Exodus, uh, God saw their struggle He heard their prayers and their cries. He felt their pain and their suffering. And he did what? He responded with compassion and mercy. And he came down to them. And he came near to them. And it says he remembered them and he saved them. That's who God is. God is a God who sees us, who knows our struggles, who cares about us. Do we need to know that every day? Gosh, I need to know that every day. I need constantly to be reminded that he's a God who knows what I am going through. And when my life is falling apart, he knows, right? He knows intimately. Not only does he know, but he cares deeply about what's going on with us. 
Right? The only way we can know God, truly know God, is to, is to continually experience and encounter his saving work. Right? To come to understand at deeper deeper levels what he's done to save us. That's why Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates, he shows his great love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? We need that reminder daily to understand who God is. Hebrews 2.9 puts it this way, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He's our Passover lamb. He tasted death so that we don't have to. Um, We will know who God is. We will know his nature and his being, his character, his heart, only as we reflect on his Salvation continually. Secondly, it's really what defines our relationship with him. Right? Um, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 put it this way, In love, God predestined us for adoption in himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Um, we are related to God. We are in a kind of relationship with him as, 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 as a father to a child because of salvation, because of what he did for us on the cross. Thirdly, it's how we shape our identity. Who are we? Well, too often who we are is trying to be what the world tells us we need to be, to be successful, to be good-looking. Thankfully, I'm just naturally all of those things, right? So I don't have to worry about that. What are you laughing at? (laughs) None of those things, right? Right. We're pressured to be what the world says we need to be. But what's our true identity? Well, here's our true identity. Again, Ephesians chapter 2. Here's your identity. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Uh, you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, sons of disobedience. That's an identity. You, you were lost. You were a sinner. You were controlled by the... The ways of this world, you're doomed to death and destruction, a child of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who are you? You are a child of God seated at the very throne in heaven. So somebody tells you you're stupid, just say, hey, I might be stupid, but I'm governing the universe. What do you got? I'm sitting with Jesus, ruling in the heavens. Stupid or not, that's our identity. That's who you are. Why do we try so hard to be somebody? You can't be more than that. You cannot be more than that. Uh, next, uh, we, need to, we need to remember and celebrate and come back to the gospel and over and over, our salvation over and over, because it inspires worship and obedience. I think it is just so significant and cool that God did not give them the Ten Commandments in Egypt. Right? He did not give them the law before the Exodus. That's what I would have done. <laughs> I would have said, here's the instruction manual, memorize it, master it. When you got this down... Then we'll talk about rescue. God doesn't do it that way. He rescues them first. Then he gives them the law. 
Why? Because he wants it very clear from the very beginning that their obedience is their response to his saving act in their life. Right? They obey because of what God has already done for them, not to earn or to force God to do something for them. God did it all in the Exodus. Right? He rescued them. And they were to be people who were so grateful and so longing to serve and worship him that they gladly and joyfully obeyed. So he ends, he ends the passage in verse 27 this way. After he gave them all these instructions, it says, The people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did as he said. And as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Right? It was in light of God's saving work that said, Yes, God, we believe you. And we are in awe of you. We joyfully worship you. We want to serve and obey you. Now, of course, they didn't do that well in the long run. Maybe they didn't do that well in the long run because they, they, they didn't stick with the foundation. They didn't stick with the basics. So what do we do with this? Um, Should we set goals for New Year's? I think goals are good. I don't know if you need to set them at New Year's, but I think it's important to have goals. Um, Jonathan Edwards wrote his resolutions. If you've never read them, you should read them. They're amazing. I think it's good to resolve things, to commit to things. Um, But if you're like me, oftentimes those commitments fail. Those goals fall short. Our desire to see what we want to be never comes to fruition. Do you ever feel that way? God, I want to be more spiritual. God, I want to serve you better. God, I want to have more faith. God, I want to be skinnier and better looking. (laughs) Just throw that on top, right? Um, But it just doesn't seem to work for me. What could it be that the problem is not our goals or in setting goals? Maybe the problem is some of the goals, but, but maybe the problem is that our foundation is inadequate. That we're trying to build up our life but we haven't built down the foundation first. And I think that's what Passover was about for the Israelites. God was saying, at the new year, you need to go back and check the foundation. And the foundation is my saving work in your life. That's what you build on. If you try to build on anything else, it's going to fall. If that foundation is not firm and solid and secure, it's going to fail. Because that really is the vital foundation, the, the central core of our life, and it should be the focus of all that we do. Out of that will come goals that God will fulfill because it will be goals that are driven by his heart and his core values and his love and his power. It changes the way we live life. And it changes what our life is about. Like running a marathon, it's not about the start. It's about enduring to the end. And the only way to endure is through the work of Christ, through his saving work. Um, Passover was about commemorating that. And, and of course, we do that many ways. One of those is through celebrating the Lord's Supper, right? It's interesting that Jesus commenced the Lord's Supper, commissioned it before he died. And it is a meal. It It is bread. Thankfully, we can have leavened bread, you know. But it's, it's, it's a meal that commemorates We need to build traditions in our families and in our personal lives and in our communities where we remember well what Jesus has done for us.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.